unprompted evaluation to validate its worth. The confusion that others exude when how you look does not align with how they thought you would speak is not your cognitive dissonance to unpack. An accent does not speak to your level of knowledge and there is no shame in not being born with an English speaking tongue. You are a multilingual maven, effortlessly switching between worlds. You remind those with your same diction that they too can achieve greatness. Welcome to the Voices of Inclusion podcast, the place where you'll hear strategic and tactical advice shared by diversity, equity, and inclusion experts. This podcast is brought to you by Matheson.io, the world's first DEI operating system. If you're looking for DEI assessments, benchmarking tools, sourcing support, training, and more, look no further. Go to Matheson.io. The link to connect with us is in the description. Let's get back to the episode. All right, Gishard. So I know you as a DEI leader and someone that has a lot of great insights to share regarding DEIB as a whole, but also ERGs and a lot of other things. But um, for people that don't know you yet, um, could you tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do? Yes, yes. And and thank you again for having me, Robert. I really appreciate this opportunity. And hey, everyone, my name is Gishard Reven. My pronouns are he, him, and I really do uh, see myself as someone who's a community builder, storyteller, wordsmith. Um, you know, I, I published, I got published in a book of poetry a few years back, and that has really been a part of my journey too, being able to tell stories and, you know, give perspectives through words. And um, I've been in the HR and DEI space for a bit over seven years now, I have a um, bachelor's in psychology, master's in human resources with a focus on org effectiveness, um, which has been really helpful when you think about change management in the DEI space. And currently I'm a, a global diversity equity inclusion manager in the travel tech space as well. That's awesome. Um, and so, you know, I know that when we think about ERGs, I feel like they are one of the most beautiful aspects of corporate spaces, mainly because I feel like that's where people can go to feel comfortable. I know our ERG meetings are every other Friday um, for the BIPOC ERG, but uh, I feel like most of us have probably been to an ERG event, but we we, we know they're, they're much more than that. They're much more than events and, you know, things that are make you feel good. But since you work specifically with ERGs, um, my burning question is, is there a key to sustainability for these groups? Yeah, such a good question. And I completely agree. There's such cultural drivers for, you know, uh, any company. And it's honestly um, sad to see them divested in, in, in some of the recent news when we talk about uh, companies like Twitter. I, I don't really know the full background story of how that came to be, but I know that a lot of people I follow in the DEI space was was talking about um, the fact that those no longer exist there. But overall, ERGs, the, the more you can pour into them from a structure, business perspective, from alignment with HR, DEI team strategy, the further they will go. And I think 
what's always important to consider is, are there formally elected roles for these IBGs that are exi existed? I always think if you're at the early stages of ERG involvement, it's great to get a pulse from the employee population themselves. What group should be the first to launch and what are people most interested in getting out of them? Is it the professional development? Is it the networking? Is it, you know, uh, awareness piece? You know, typically when we talk about allyship, it's more building that, that knowledge and core competency and, and what systemic racism and how we can, you know, be better as a company overall. So I think it's really starting first on what group should be first, but in terms of sustainability, are you ensuring that you have a global president for your IBG? Are you ensuring that you have a, a global communications chair, a global growth chair? So these, all these roles make sure that there are lines of uh, accountability, but also make sure that they have clearly defined responsibilities that they can um, you know, do their work under and, and they know what their remit is. In addition to that, I really, really do believe there has to be some form of a compensation involved for those people who are taking time out of their day-to-day -to, -day to take on this role. Not only should they be compensated, whether that's stocks or bonus or whatever makes sense for your company, but there should also be that uh, really actionable amount of time allocated to the role, let's say you have a 5% or 10% time allocation where their managers or teams, the company understand that they have this time scope to do this work. So those are some important factors that really help. But how are you also making sure that your ERGs are connecting to a value of the company? Do you have a value around inclusion that can really showcase that ERGs are actualizing on that on that value, because then it is very hard for a leader to say that, you know, this is wasted work if it's embedded in the company value. So I think um, all of those, uh, you know, from knowing which ERGs to launch based on company interests, knowing how to formalize the structure, the roles, and making sure that they have support from HR, DEI teams, and then connecting it to a company value uh, or company strategy, um, and, you know, building the roadmap around that to make sure that if there's alignment with ERGs and that overarching strategy, that it's very hard to not prove their worth and why they need to be here long term. And I know some people, when they hear ERG leaders need to be paid, because I think you're the second person to mention that uh, some mm -hmm. leaders are going, oh, no, we don't have the budget for that. But um, when we think about the ERG leader budget, as well as we know that ERGs themselves need budgets, um, what should we think about that ERG leader budget? Is it, you know, a certain percentage of their salary? Is it a monthly stipend? What do you think? Yeah, I mean, there's there's so many ways to do it. I mean, I think a monthly stipend is is one way. I think, you know, if, if companies already have, let's say, recognition programs based on uh, merit or, or things like that uh, that are already in play company-wide, I feel like there's an easy way to tie it in and embed a structure to add on ERGs. If that, let's say they have these elected roles, let's say they have a one-year term or two-year term, mm -hmm. create sort of a, a vesting schedule for 
company stocks because not only will that give them uh, a reward, but it'll also in some ways uh, potentially ensure that they stay there long term. They're motivated to stay there if you have that vesting schedule. So that's one of the reasons why I think um, you know uh, company stocks might work well. But I think there are many ways to do it. I think even one consideration can be how are you investing in their professional development? Some companies have, let's say, uh, you know, uh, they'll reimburse you for college credits or, or give you a stipend for professional development. I think if you don't have that at a company, that's fine. But either way, another good um, way to reward them uh, ERG leaders is to have, uh, let's say, professional development will give you 5k for professional development for the year, spend it on anything that will continue to build your career. That way, not only are they, you know, if they were already thinking about, oh, I need to take a, a coding class coming up to get to the next level, you just help them get there by providing them um, with, you know, that, that money that they can use directly to that goal and get, get to the next level of their career. Right. And I know you've been doing a lot of great work in terms of microaggressions, and I really love the philosophy that you shared with me uh, last week. So could you talk a little bit about uh, that philosophy that you've been working on, going deeper on lately? Yeah, absolutely. And for those, I know most are probably familiar uh, on who mm -hmm. listen to this with what microaggressions are, but just to give a, a quick high level, Microaggressions really are just those, you know, everyday slights, indignities, put downs, insults that commonly are directed towards people of color, women, LGBTQ plus population or any group really that's that's marginalized or underrepresented. Um, and these can happen, you know, outright as actual verbal slights, or they can be nonverbal, how someone, you know, um, body language is towards you, things like that. And again, the, the terminology around it is called slides, but really these can be really damaging. And there's also been a lot of research recently on how these can impact you long-term from, you know, an anxiety perspective, from a, a mental health perspective. And even in some cases, it can give you you know, high blood pressure and things of that nature. So the mental really does affect the physical with a lot of these things. So, you know, having experiencing a lot of microaggressions in, in my really higher education and career, uh, in, in um, my higher ed, I went to a, a predominantly white institution. And, you know, those experiences, it's very difficult not to internalize them and have them impact how you think about yourself, what you're capable of, you know, there's a, there's a lot of talk about imposter syndrome and what that looks like. So I sort of took the idea of micro uh, aggressions and wanted to shift it really for myself, but almost like journaling out loud for a larger audience so they can take these and, you know, and um, hopefully um, reframe those experiences too. So I created a series where mainly this is on LinkedIn, on Instagram right now, where I call it the reframe to reclaim series, where you're taking these microaggressions you might hear and finding ways to shift them into a positive affirmation that 
helps you potentially reclaim something you may have lost from, you know, some some slights that you experienced from someone else. And I've really seen this grow and I've and I've seen such great responses from just hearing other people's stories and, and realizing so many people have these similar experiences with hearing this. Um, I mean, I can even read one for you just, just to give an example. And, and this was one of my, uh, I guess, most engaged one in terms of hearing other people's stories. So I'll just read it real quickly. Dare Latinos and Latinas that have been told you speak English so well, a reminder, your English does not require unprompted evaluation to validate its worth. The confusion that others exude when how you look does not align with how they thought you would speak is not your cognitive dissonance to unpack. An accent does not speak to your level of knowledge and there is no shame in not being born with an English speaking tongue. You are a multilingual maven, effortlessly switching between worlds. You remind those with your same diction that they too can achieve greatness. And again, the microaggression there, you know, uh, was you speak English so well. A lot of people who are right. uh, not born in the U.S. sometimes hear this, and it's and it and like some people might be saying it um, with no intent to cause harm but especially those in the DEI space know intent intent and impact are usually you know they're not the same thing right you can have good intentions and, and still cause a negative impact so being able to shift that and you know how can you talk about this how can you self-speak and self-affirm yourself and remind yourself that although that comment might now stick in the back of your head how can you let it go that comment says more about the person who said it than anything about you. And, and that's sort of where um, my impetus for, for the stories sto- uh, for the series came about really just, I realized early on in my career and in my higher ed experiences, I was starting to take on these connotations, these negative stereotypes people had about me. And, and I started to be like, Oh, am I really that smart? Or, Oh, like, am I, am I this? Like, you know, they, they think on this, even though I knew it was not true. It's very hard when you get right. the same messaging over and over to not to some, um, you know, a, a little piece of you starts to believe it. So what are you going to do for yourself? Because these microaggressions, it's sad to say, you know, they may never go away or it may take some, you know, time for them to, to you know, no longer be a conversation we have to have. So until then, how can we do this? And this is one small way. There are ERGs or communities, you find safe spaces, but I found that this was an important way for me to shift that message, at least with myself internally. Yeah. And, and to me, I feel like the word microaggressions, and we I know that it's really loaded, you know, but at mm. the same time, I feel like a lot of leaders may think, hey, I have to be incredibly careful about my communication. And I know you as a as a wordsmith, you're probably very mm-hmm. careful um, when it comes to that. Um, what do you think about people that really, I mean, they, they don't necessarily mean to cause harm uh, via microaggressions, but 
um, how does someone like how should they respond when someone calls them in and says, "Hey, we shouldn't say that or we shouldn't do that"? Um, what's, what's your take on that? Yeah, that's such a good question, and and I think this happens a lot. It's it's becoming more common, and and I think it always goes back to not being defensive. And I think this mm. is where when we think about leadership skills. And I've seen a lot of research recently on Harvard Business Review on, on the fact that emotional intelligence as a soft skill is a requirement to be a leader. You can no longer just, you know, be a good talker. You can no longer just, you know, know the strategy or know your role so well. To be an effective leader, especially in uh, continuously more, uh, you know, culturally, uh, you know, uh, culturally evolving workplace, one that's mm -hmm. continuing to become more diverse, you need to lead with empathy. And a big piece of that is understanding when you go wrong or when you do something that hurts someone else, uh, you have to be able to be okay with being called in. You have to own it. You have to say, you know, you work to do better. And then honestly, it's up to you to do a self-check-in, uh, self-audit. Okay. Did I do better? Did I call that person the right name this time? Even though last time I said, oh, your name is too complicated. I'm just going to call you this as a nickname, which is a microaggression I've heard a lot for people who have comp complex names. Um, mm -hmm. I myself don't have an easy name, <laughs> but um, yeah, are, are you going to do that work? Are you going to take the onus off of the person who really, truth of the matter, it, is doing something brave by actually calling you out, uh, are you going to do that work and, and make sure that you're better next time and not get defensive and say, oh, no, I didn't mean to, or I'm sorry you felt that way, which when you say I'm sorry you feel that way, that is really like not a true apology to me because you're not really apologizing. You're saying, oh, you shouldn't have felt that way. So I think that's going to be the biggest piece. Have that empathy understand how you can not necessarily you won't necessarily ever be able to you know be in another person's shoes but that doesn't mean you can't empathize with their experience so that that's where it's gonna gonna start and you know most workplaces at this point if not all have a plethora of trainings one can take you know there's always ways to do research on on your own as 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 a person who um, you know, does something not inclusive, but it just starts with ownership. That's that's always going to be first and foremost, and not trying to place blame on someone else. Mm, totally see what you mean, um, and you know the, the the concept of quiet quitting. It seems like it's a term that I've heard a lot, especially within the last couple of years. Um, what's your take on quiet quitting, and why do you feel like people are doing it? Yeah, I mean, even to think about a little bit more about the DEI lens of it and how some may even quote unquote quiet quit from being in an environment where they don't feel is inclusive enough for them to fully engage in the ways they want. I mean, my real true, I don't want to call it a hot take, but my take when I saw these <laughs> articles about quiet quitting was I have never been able to do that in a role. I don't know any person of color <laughs> or, you know, someone who who looks like me, who feels they have had that 
privilege and i and i get at this point there are a couple definitions of, of quiet quitting and what that looks like but to me when when someone says quiet quitting that means doing the absolute bare minimum um just to get by and again i myself i can speak from my experience even when i've quit like even when i've resigned from roles and i have let's say two three weeks left I'm still doing the absolute above and beyond because I do not want to be stereotyped as, oh, so-and-so's lazy because of uh, his background or, or this right. or that. You know, even when you think about intersectionality, Black women have it so much um, more, it's so much more difficult to get ahead as, as, as a Black woman in these corporate spaces. I can't envision most of them uh, most women from that background say, oh, I'm going to quiet, quiet, quit because people like that may constantly be on edge. They, they may be right. constantly, you know, fighting to feel they have to prove their worth to being a, be in a space or an environment where it was maybe difficult to get there in the first place. So I think when it comes to quiet quitting, we have to look a little bit deeper of the um, different layers to it because yes, at a high... At a high level, I think the sentiments of, you know, reclaiming ourselves in the workspace, reclaiming rest is an important one, but it looks different for different people. And not everyone has the privilege of doing that. You may, you know, people from underrepresented backgrounds, this came up a lot in a previous company as well, where they're the sole breadwinner for multiple people. Like they may be the main earner for their parents and they're supporting them can do they really have the opportunity to quite quit i don't know let's think about that so i really do think there's an opportunity for hr people culture teams to dig deeper on what can be done um you know proactively so that people don't feel they have to quite quit because i do think the core conversation is really about rest and being able to turn off and being able to feel that you do not always have to be um, connected or on to to be an effective employee so that that piece is warranted um, warranted and I think it's a good conversation but you know there there are other pieces to the puzzle I think are important to uh, bring into that that um, discussion that is so interesting I totally understand that I, I mean even when I'm on vacation I'm like at 9 a.m. I'm like, okay, wait a second. <laughs> what am I supposed to do here? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. You're almost programmed to like, you know, jolt up and be like, oh, it's 9 a.m. What, what, you know, like, is everything good? Like, yeah, I totally hear you. Check my email. Um, <laughs> right. um, and before I let you go, just wanted to get your thoughts on, you know, on this. If, if there was one action that our DEI listeners could take after listening to this, um, what action would you urge them to take? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think what's important is ensuring you have a formal rewards and recognition program for your ERG leaders. I, you know, they're, they're putting so much work, but they're putting so much work in, but how they're being recognized, amplified, how does their team, their their um, manager know about all the efforts being done to make the company more inclusive uh, and, a, and a great culture. So I think being able to recognize and, and reward 
great work, impactful work is it's going to be important. And, and DEI teams needs to continue to be that uh, driver for uh, you know fostering this environment through ERGs, but supporting them, making sure that there's that connection and tie-in, whether it's you know helping them get executive sponsors or things of that nature, making sure that they have that line of support. So it's the rewards recognition and just overall making sure that things connect to strategy and that they feel they have people they can go to for support. That's awesome. And um, and how can our listeners get in contact with you? Yeah, I mean, I, I think easiest for me is just LinkedIn because I have a unique name, so it's pretty easy to find me. And, I, you know, I'm trying to continue posts like the one I, I shared earlier on on the call. So, you know, first name G-U-I-S-H-A-R-D, last name R-E-B as in Victor A-N. And, yeah, I was happy to connect with people on LinkedIn and, you know, talk about DEI. So, yeah, thanks again for, for including me in this as well, Robert. Of course, Kishard. Thank you so much for joining me. And uh, man, I hope you have a good rest of your day. Thanks so much. All right. All take right. care, Robert. Talk to you soon. All right. If you're looking for DEI assessments, benchmarking tools, sourcing support, training, and more, look no further. Go to www.matheson.io and book a call to speak with us. The link is in the description. We're looking forward to connecting with you next time.